You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Friday, December 11th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley and Weston Nakamura. Thanks, Ash. I'm joined by a very special guest, Weston Nakamura, who's a veteran trader from Goldman Sachs and Jefferies, but now he uh, has joined Real Vision in our uh, community platform, The Exchange. Uh, Weston, so great to have you on The Daily Briefing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Weston, I know that you've prepared a few charts uh, as well. You also gave me some instructions. So I, uh, my, my Bloomberg terminal, uh, fired it up and made a few charts of, of my own for you. So let's get right into it because this is the intro. Um, what are you seeing uh, with regards to uh, Japanese equities relative to China and as, as well as perhaps a proxy to the uh, value and growth trade? I'm just going to keep this really quick because everything's going to be on the, on the exchange. But basically, value versus growth, if you believe in that um, sort of momentum shift that's happening right now from value to growth, um, you can actually play it instead of doing the QQQ versus the IWM, the Russell 2000 versus the, uh, the NASDAQ, you could actually just go long Japan and short China. It's a regional macro play as well. China has been this growth engine for 30 years um, with you know, 5 6% GDP growth. Japan has been just nothing for the last 30 years. And this is sort of a, a basically a macro version of that. You also have kind of weird similarities as well in terms of like regulation from Chinese authorities on the tech sector, regulation from U.S. authorities on the U.S. tech se- sector. Um, Japan is basically this uh, otherwise forgotten sort of asset that um, people, when there's a lot of froth in the markets, look for and they see Japan with very little political volatility with, you know, um, not at all time highs. Uh, you know, COVID cases relatively kind of under control. And so <clears throat> and so Japan looks like the attractive long, if you're going to go long in DM equity. Uh, I actually have a, a challenge uh, for you, but I'm going to, we're going to save that for the exchange because we have to um, move on. Uh, what do you see uh, with the USD JPY trade um, compared to the Nikkei SP, uh, S&P ratio? Um, yeah. I know you have an interesting chart uh, showing that they're matched, but now it appears that the uh, dollar yen is a little bit dislocated from that ratio of the uh, Nikkei to the S&P. What are you seeing there? Yep. So the Nikkei and the S&P ratio uh, tracks USD JPY usually pretty pretty spot on. And right now they've diverged. So it actually gives you an opportunity to go long Nikkei if you want to go long. Uh, and you could actually hedge it by going long the yen as well, should there be a pullback and you get some yen strength. Great. Um, there's uh, another chart I want to talk about quickly. We're actually, I'm not going to talk about it, but I just want to quickly mention it and put it on screen. Um, it's the interest rate differential between the dollar uh, and the yen 10-year yields, real yields, I should say, and then relative to um, the USD JPY spot rate. But we're, again, this is just the intro. We're plowing through the snow, West, and let's go right ahead to the next chart, which is the one-month implied volatility of the dollar yen to the Turkish lira yen. Um, that, Of course, those are currency pairs. What do you make of that? 
Okay, so this chart is, this tells a whole story of basically um, two separate uh, central banks with two totally different management systems. One of them is very powerful, that's Japan. They've been controlling the yield curve since September of 2016 with yield curve control. JGB 10-year yields are going to be at around zero. Turkey, on the, other, uh, on the other hand, has brought their rates from 8% to 25%, down to 8% again, and now they're hiking it back again. And that's been through three across three central bank governors. Mind you, the last one was fired. The next day after he was fired, the finance minister of Turkey, who happens to be Erdogan's son-in-law, quits his job via Instagram. And people were kind of freaking out, thinking that his account got hacked. But no, he actually quit through Instagram. This is what finance ministers do there. So uh, that's that's displayed right there in that in the implied volatility chart of, uh, of the lira. Yeah, it really is a tale of two currencies. Um, moving on to the next chart of the Turkish lira. Um, in the blue line, we have uh, the overnight rate, which is set by the Central Bank of Turkey, um, which, as you said, has gyrated from 10% in 2017 to up to 25%, then down. Um, but as the, the, the lira uh, devalued to as low as $10, uh, excuse me, 10 lira um, per $1, uh, over the past few months, that, that uh, rate has risen. Um, what do you make of, you know, the chart that I made is of that um, overnight rate relative to uh, inflation. And it actually seems that for most of the past five years, real rates in Turkey have been positive. What do you make of that? Real rates have been positive, but the only reason that's significant is because when people think like, oh, my God, they have a 25 percent policy rate. Yeah, but that's because they have a 25 percent you know, interest rate. And also that's their that's their CPI. That's not the actual on the ground interest rate. You, you have food inflation at like 30, 35 percent. You know, everyone has their own inflation, as they say. Uh, Turkey's is, is not at 12 or 15 percent. It's, it's far higher. All right. Uh, we'll have to get into that. Uh, maybe I'll just uh, dig you a little bit on, on the exchange. Again, uh, Wes and I will be having a much more in-depth conversation on these charts and giving these charts the uh, detail they deserve. But uh, now, for now, Weston, let's move on to your next chart, which is a topic that uh, is very fond of uh, some Real Vision members as, as well as RAL. It charts the correlation uh, between the S&P 500 and Bitcoin. What do you make of this? Yeah, so this chart is actually from a member of the exchange who basically brought this in. And what you have is the S&P 500 uh, correlating uh, and its 20-day uh, correlation with um, or I'm sorry, Bitcoin's 20-day correlation with the S&P 500, which is essentially a one-month correlation. And what you'll notice is over the last few months, there have been these sort of precipitous drop-offs in correlation right at month end, almost down to the day. And I personally don't know what's behind that, you know, honestly. But what that kind of suggests to me is that this sort of behavior, this month-end behavior, is starting to look almost institutional in nature in terms of rebalancing and things like that. And it suggests and me sorry, that- sorry, Weston, sorry to interrupt you. Can you tell the viewers at home um, just why the fact that it's at the end of the month, you know, what does that mean for portfolio managers? What, what is rebalancing? Can you tell people at home? Um, so if you're, if you're mandated to be 60-40, for example, and your equity portions go up a lot, you have to sell that down, you have to buy more bonds, and you have to keep that 60-40 balance. It's a rebalance. Um, and so there's a lot of month end flows that happen in times of large asset price uh, swings during, um, you know, a course of a month. And that should have nothing to do with Bitcoin fundamentally. But apparently you're starting to see these, these you know, uh, movements in 
correlation. This is realized correlation. Um, so there's obviously something happening and it is not the retail investor who's every month at month and doing anything. This mm. has the footprints of institutional um, flows and institutional behavior. And ah, so, so, so I that, think that we're starting to see uh, the, you know, the institutional money actually starting to impact a little bit. Well, that's an interesting chart for sure. Um, I have so many questions, but I'm going to have to save them for our uh, in-depth conversation on the exchange. Um, remember, for the folks at home, uh, if you liked having Weston on, you want to hear more about these charts and rather than you know just having Weston uh, go through it like this and actually want to hear some analysis and some real you know uh, detailed conversation. Um, and we're going to be having that at the exchange. So please click on the link in the description below. Uh, thank you, we thank you, Weston. Thanks so much. And I want to hear your analysis too. And that's what the exchange is all about. So come and you know we'll have a discussion about it. Right? It's two way. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Um, all right. Thanks. Back to you, Ash. Welcome back, Ed. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Hey, you know, that reminds me, actually, since it is Friday, I need to go get something. Let me go off camera for a second and, and, and uh, put on a different outfit really quickly. Oh, boy, this one makes me nervous. <laughs> the sound of zippers in the background. Okay, here we go. <laughs> that, that's what I wanted to do for you there, Ash. Very nice. All right. How do you like it? Very nice. Well played, sir. Very well Excellent. played. Excellent. What do you got for us today? Ed, I feel like it's a, a tech Friday. A lot of tech stories that we were talking about earlier, um, you know, right back, big picture, tech eating the world. A lot of stories uh, that suggest that, that explore those issues. What are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, there was a piece by Kara Swisher in the New York Times that I thought was apropos. And I think that's where I would lead off in terms of tech. I mean, if I could frame the issue, what I would say is that a lot of people, I, I talked to a guy earlier today, actually, who is the, um, he's the uh, portfolio manager and director of Double Lines uh, Global, um, their developed market uh, practice for, uh, for credit. Mm. And we were talking about tech as rock solid. You know, 20 years ago, telecom and tech was seen as really volatile in the same way that energy was in the credit space, but now it's seen as, you know, totally rock solid. So when we talk about tech these days, we're thinking about large cap techs like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, et cetera. And when we think about them from a credit perspective, we're thinking they're as good as it gets because they're so big. Yeah. But it, it wasn't always that way, obviously. And the interesting uh, sort of, um, just from a, a purely economic perspective, right now, what we see in terms of large cap tech, in terms of the stay at home versus not stay at home market, they're doing really well because not only are they rock solid, but they benefit from this environment. So everyone's like, tech is great. But then you look at what Carl Swisher had to say in the New York Times and you understand you know, the seedy underbelly, I would say there, because what she talks about is she talks about the fact that uh, there's been these lawsuits that are coming. It, uh, she says it's 22 years in the coming that uh, Facebook finally is meeting some sort of antitrust from regulators. And she says that actually in the technology market, it's not about innovation. 
and it's not about uh, new things bubbling up. It's really about those large cap tech companies like Facebook dominating by either buying up their rivals, you know, uh, favoring their own products, or by in some way uh, mimicking their their rivals' products and then trying to drive them out of business. Yeah. So it's anti-competitive. And that's why they're so rock solid. And this needs to to come to an end because innovation is going to be spurred as a result of that. So that's that's yeah. the big picture that I think is really interesting. Yeah. You know, Cara Swisher, it's a hell of a piece in the New York Times. I literally finished reading it and started at the beginning again and read it again. Cara Swisher basically lays out uh, the prosecutor's brief, so to speak, uh, for the case uh, for basically taking action against these uh, huge tech companies. She focuses in this piece uh, on Google and especially on Facebook. Uh, and the case is basically that these are companies, in her view, that are uh, that are taking anti-competitive practices to effectively quash their rivals, suppress competition, uh, consolidate profits. Uh, and it is a it is a pretty damning case indeed uh, that she makes uh, this notion uh, that these companies uh, and the most detail is on Facebook have either gone after their rivals in ways that are anti-competitive, sought to buy those rivals, as you pointed out, and uh, again, as you pointed out, uh, or to emulate their functionality, as in the case of Snapchat, which is the last major social network um, that uh, that we've seen come online, and that was way back in two thousand and one. Uh, so here we are, nine years later, and the landscape basically looks the same. It's a pretty damning case. Yeah, uh, so she d does go into Facebook in particular with that 2011 Snapchat being the last thing that was uh, actually innovative in that space. And I think actually, if you think about Fang, when people use the Fang with a double A, uh, the only company that escapes any sort of scrutiny from this perspective is Netflix. But if you go down the list, you think Facebook, they're either buying up their competitors or they're imitating their products. You think about uh, Amazon, they're supposedly favoring their own products, same as Google and search. And then Apple is, is because it's the only game in town for that whole ecosystem, is charging anti-competitive levels of pricing. Uh, Fortnite, as an example, Epic, uh, I think it's Epic Games, yeah. they are... Uh, fighting Apple, as are a bunch of other people with regard to what they consider anti-competitive practices. So the long and short is, by hook or by crook, these companies are trying to hold on to their fortresses. And it's to the point now where we have anti, uh, antitrust against them. L let yeah. me say this before we go any further. I mean, I, I've, I was thinking about this car swisher thing overnight. And I think we've been saying for some time that irrespective of whether Trump uh, won the election or Biden won the election, we're going to get some movement on this issue. I think where the rubber hits the road in terms of that movement is, is if you think about what Trump is saying, he's actually talking about his own personal grievances, i.e. these companies are uh, you know, not giving him the say that he wants. They're, they're basically censoring him is what he's saying. Uh, on the other hand, the Biden people, uh, are they're saying that these guys have too much power and we might need to look into them from an antitrust position. Those are essentially the exact same views, one viewed from a purely ideologically, uh, it's all about me prism, and the other from a ideologically, it's all about the antitrust in that market prism. I look right. at Trump saying, these guys have too much power. And the answer is yes, they probably do have too much power, uh, but he feels their power. 
and, uh, and and in a personal way, and that's why he thinks about it. Whereas the Biden approach is that you know these guys have too much power, and and uh, that's bad for the marketplace, and we're going to do something about that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and just to expand on that point, you know, the the sort of the Trump personality issues uh, are being what they are. But it's interesting that Republicans in general have, uh, perhaps not in the same personal context that uh, President Trump does, but they really do feel this sense uh, of 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 anxiety about the power that these tech platforms have uh, in terms of their ability uh, to, in their view, influence free speech uh, on the web. So some of it is the is the personality issue uh, with President Trump, and that just as a as a as a matter of pure fact is something that's going to end on January twentieth. But the underlying issues. Uh, that conservatives have with these tech platforms, uh, Facebook and Twitter especially, uh, is something that's not going away. And you know, to to your point, effectively, what you have is uh, two political parties who can agree upon basically nothing, agreeing on this that large tech companies have too much power in the United States uh, in 2020. Yeah, so it's a fascinating thing. And let me just point out that when you go back 20 years ago. Uh, uh, when Microsoft, more than 20 years ago, not 22 years ago, when Microsoft was being uh, sued uh, for antitrust, we had the Clinton administration that was basically getting rid of Glass-Steagall and deregulating like crazy in a way that people think led to the great financial crisis. So, yeah. you know, both both parties in the United States contributed to this anti-regulatory fervor that led us to where we are today. Yeah. I would say that, you know, as we speak now, uh, you know, the Trump administration is doing a massive num amount of deregulation that they can put through in order to get the last hurrah from that deregulation push. It's only in this one segment, however, uh, yeah. that is in the tech space where they see, uh, you know, something where the pendulum has to swing the other way. So I think the tech space in particular is challenged on both sides, irrespective of, of what happens going forward. You're going to see a co coalescing in Congress and in the White House together around the issue of these guys need more scrutiny. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's almost like the mirror image of what we saw during the Clinton administration uh, in terms of deregulation and re-regulation uh, of these technology platforms. You know, and just to talk and to add an exclamation point, perhaps, uh, you know, obviously Democratic uh, Attorney General Letitia James here in New York delivering uh, that speech uh, live, uh, all the uh, financial news nets covered it. Uh, and now you have going back a couple of months uh, to the antitrust action uh, taken against Google, you have uh, a, a Democratic uh, attorney general in the state of California joining that suit. If you think about that, uh, an attorney general in California from the Democratic Party, this is the this is the this is the power industry uh, in the state of California, and you have the Democratic attorney general joining that suit. So it does, you know, precisely to your broader point, suggest that there really is uh, an immense amount uh, of will to attempt to rein these companies in. 
And, you know, I think most people are concerned about what's going on in Texas suing these other states uh, because of the political process and the election and so forth. But what you're saying in terms of what attorneys general are doing, that's really where the rubber hits the road. Uh, this is what what we should be caring about since we're a financial uh, platform. Yeah. We you know, I was just going to say, and exactly to that point, if you want to look at the financial case for this, if you want to get it out of the, the domain of kind of airy philosophy or, or, or analysis, just look at the chart. Pull up, uh, pull up XLK. Look at, the, look at the technology select sector spider uh, and look at it. First, look at it on a five-year time horizon and look how it outperforms the S&P. And then look how it outperforms NASDAQ as well, the other growth companies. Uh, that and, and then flip that time horizon from five years uh, to one year. And what you see, actually, is the continued outperformance of XLK versus the S&P 500. But you see XLK and NASDAQ composite tracking each other virtually to one-to-one -one correspondence. Why? Because the market capitalization of those companies has swelled so massively that if you want to know what XLK is doing, uh, you can just look at the NASDAQ. Yeah. So I would say that the, the big issue for investors going forward, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation from a financial perspective is uh, what does that mean yeah. uh, given the so-called rock solid nature of these companies uh, and the fact that they're the, many of them are the stay at home companies that have been outperforming. Here you have companies like Apple, as an example, which has almost no revenue growth. Uh, trading at multiples that are very rich relative to their growth. So if you do like a peg, you know, uh, price earnings to growth, they don't look good. Uh, and so you throw in a regulatory mix into that. And Microsoft, by the way, is the one is the odd man out in terms of that because you know they actually uh, no one's talking about them from a, uh, a regulatory perspective. You get these. You get some serious haircuts to these companies. Yeah. Uh, so I think that 2021, as we go into the next year, the potential for uh, these companies to underperform the market or even to drag the market down overall is high. Yeah, extremely well said. I'll throw in uh, one wild card. You rewound uh, the clock back 20 years. I'll rewind it back 40. Uh, to the AT&T divestiture. Uh, this this, the breakup of AT&T was the greatest financial bonanza for those shareholders, better than anything that would have taken place with organic growth, because what wound up happening was those companies split out uh, into the Arbox, the regional bell operating companies. The Arbox then spun out into a number of other companies. Uh, and if you own stock in AT&T, you made out brilliantly. So from the perspective of potential shareholder value, obviously this is speculative. We're applying uh, a paradigm, something that happened in the past, no guarantee that it would happen again in the future. But I would have to be pretty bullish uh, if a company like Google or Facebook spun off into five or six different companies and then those companies sort of uh, followed suit and spun off again. I mean, you would have to think that the innovation that could be released by that, if you if you think, you know, you think about a, a company even the size of Real Vision, people have great ideas all of the time, and we have to say no. It's easy to say no to bad ideas, but it's terrible to have to say no to someone who has this amazing idea, and you say, actually, that's a great idea, but we have to focus on our core mission uh, at Real Vision. That must happen all of the time, and when you think about a ship that's that massive, the size of uh, a, a Google uh, or a Microsoft uh, or a, or a, or a Facebook, they must have so many opportunities for those companies. So, in in the interest of unfettered capitalism, it might be the best possible outcome for shareholder value to see some of those companies spin off. 
Well, you know, I think that's a very good glass half full type of uh, analysis. Let me give you the glass half empty analysis. <laughs> the, the glass half empty analysis is one that says that the core issue that we're talking about, which is regulation, AT&T is an example of how it worked over the last 20 to 30 years. So they were split up into the baby bells, but then you know you had companies like 9X and Bell Atlantic, which suddenly became uh, you know, Verizon, and they reconfigured themselves into these smaller fiefdoms uh, where really it was almost as anti-competitive as it was before, uh, just in different guises, and then they moved into other arenas, gobbling up other companies along the way. And, yep. And why? Because even though they had the breakup, we were in the midst from the 80s to the 90s to the the noughties in this massive deregulatory uh, uh, phase. And only now, with AT&T now deciding, okay, we screwed up and we're over leveraged, and therefore we have to get rid of DISH, which we bought in order to continue to dominate. Are we seeing any sort of moves? Uh, and, and those are moves that are actually precipitated by the market, by the fact that AT&T is over leveraged and they screwed up and and and, and now they, they don't want to be uh, a, a junk company, so they need to deleverage. So I look at it as, uh, you know, it, there, wa this is, there was an innovation. There was just uh, a reconfiguration of the bigness that we saw before in, in different guises. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of innovation for investment bankers. <laughs> uh, I should have said 1984, not 1980, in terms of the divestiture of AT&T. Uh, but no, you know, it is it is an interesting question. I, I just often wonder, I was thinking about Microsoft the other day. You think about their different operating units. You think about cloud services, for example, operating systems, uh, office applications, hardware, gaming systems. You know, it's a really hard argument to see the synergies between those groups. To me, it feels mostly like distraction, right? The idea that you're running all of these very different verticals together. And, you know, obviously this is, I'm not a scholar uh, of the operations of Microsoft. I'm just looking at it from a 50,000 foot level. You have to wonder if each one of those companies had its own CEO, its own board of directors, its own mandate to maximize shareholder value based on playing in those particular domains, would they potentially generate more revenue for shareholders? I, I think it's an interesting question to ask at the very least. Yeah, I, I would agree with you 100%. Yeah. And there is that sense, and, and Cara Swisher's article to come back to it, there is that sense of, a, of an absence uh, of innovation uh, in a very real way uh, on some of these platforms. That's the, the big issue. Yeah. The bigness means that you stifle innovation and it becomes very stagnant. And, right. uh, you know, just even overlooking the free speech issue, that's really from an investor's perspective and from a society wide perspective of what technology brings. That's the biggest problem with what's happening now. Yeah. You know, one point that Cara Swisher did not mention in the article that I was thinking about, just sort of in passing, uh, was one of the challenges that uh, that we have with thinking about this is historically, these antitrust arguments are generally done around price, uh, specifically when you have anti-competitive practices, uh, when you have like horizontal and vertical integration. If you think back, uh, you know, to like uh, college history classes about the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Act, what you hear was this is very bad for consumers because prices rise dramatically uh, as as competitors collude in some way uh, or engage in anti-competitive practices. In this particular case, it's very challenging uh, because 
because uh, there is no cost, no cost in double quotes to consumers in using these products. They're ultimately free. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the old joke, right? If you're not paying for the product, you're not, that you're not, that's not the product. You're the product, right? You're being sold to. And so this is a really interesting space in terms of law, in terms of economics, and in terms of the overall arching philosophy of how people think of what anti-competitive practices mean today in 2020. Yeah, I, I take a fairly, um, I guess, uh, opinionated view here, rather than look at it just purely from a journalistic perspective. This is what's happening. Uh, the view I take is similar to what Kara Swisher was saying, and that is that uh, it is overdue at a yep. minimum uh, for a look. Uh, these companies, uh, they're not necessarily giving us massive amounts of innovation, and we do need to understand to what degree they're abusing their market power. Yeah. And, you know, to follow up on that point about price, it's simply impossible to use price, right? I mean, I wasn't sort of saying it academically. I think it's pretty clear that price is not the right metric to use. Yeah. I, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, where this goes, both at the state level, but also at the federal level. Yeah, especially with the, with the incoming Biden administration. And once again, I guess we can play the tape back. Uh, we're not going to know where we land uh, in terms of the legislature until January 5th, when we find out or thereafter, where we find out which party controls the Senate. Hey, so Ash, you know, I, I showed you three stories that I was looking at. I, you saw that I was looking at Kara Swisher, so I'm glad that we talked yeah. about that. There's also this other story that I showed you from uh, Bloomberg News. Actually, I, I, I gave you a link from the Financial Post. Uh, it's about water, that water is now trading on the CME. Uh, what did you think of that? I thought it was actually fascinating. And the reason that water is trading on the CME now is because there's a perception that there's going to be a price impact, right? CME is doing this because there's an economic case to do so. And it shows that there's a perception, at least, of rising risk of the availability of water, especially uh, in California. Now, I know that there are people uh, who will say that this is some kind of virtue signaling that water is being traded. But look, I would say uh, I love whales and dolphins, majestic creatures, lots of good organizations that do work to, to save them and to preserve the oceans. But there aren't a capital market solution uh, to the problem of uh, endangered cetaceans. The reason that CME is doing this uh, is because there's the potential for significant profits. Otherwise, you don't roll out a line of business that looks like this. And to me, that's just a signal. Uh, you take it purely objectively, non-political. That's just a signal that there's a perception uh, among some smart players, market participants, that there's a rising risk of a supply crunch. And in, in interesting, the headline says, water joins gold and oil for the first time as traded commodity on Wall Street amid fears of scarcity. So it's the scarcity of clean water, the scarcity of water, and they're talking about California in particular. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, there's a documentary I watched, I forget the name of it, a couple of months ago about the situation in uh, California water. There are towns uh, in California that have like incredible 
crunches of getting access to the clean water. Uh, and you know, it looks like something that you would you would expect to see uh, in a developing nation. You see Americans uh, walking with a you know like a three liter Tide bottle to go to a pump somewhere to fill up. You you look at that and you think, boy, this is this is really something we need to think about. You know, this is an issue that's been coming for a long time. Uh, I was I covered it before when I did a series uh, called Boom Bust. It was a weekday thing that I used to do uh, four or five years ago. And I think that it would be good, actually, on RV to have people to cover it, even if it's not a markets-oriented uh, view. I mean, because obviously this is all about the markets here with the CME, but there are two things that I was thinking about in particular. One is uh, that whole market is from an investment perspective of desalinization. That is, is, is there's this whole market where, and I think Australia at the time when I was looking at it, where they were taking uh, salt water and turning it into yeah. water that was drinkable. So, I mean, there's tons of salt water in the world. So water scarcity isn't there. It's really the fresh water scarcity that we're talking about. The exactly. second thing I was thinking about is uh, with regard to natural disasters, uh, water scarcity associated with that. Yeah. We see a natural disaster right now, which is actually a hurricane or a series of hurricanes that went through Central America, which is causing a caravan to move through potentially up to the U.S. border. Uh, and that's something that people are concerned about. It, it, it could e easily be the, the case, and I know it has been in the recent past, that uh, water scarcity in the developed world, the developing world, not the developed world, causes migration patterns that really, you know, bring to bear a, a lot of difficulty in the immigration issue. Yeah, and of course that has public policy and market impact and also a, a, a human a human impact as well. I think also Israel, uh, probably not surprising when you think about it, I guess, a small desert country, uh, very rich in technology. I believe they have a very active desalination uh, program as well. Yeah, so I think... Um, I'd love if people had some thoughts in the comments. Are they interested in water, you know, beyond the market uh, stuff? And uh, if so, then we can start looking and uh, and talking to different people who have uh, very good, uh, informed views about it. Yeah, and also to that point, Ed, uh, jump in also on the tech issue. What your thoughts are there, and what kind of coverage you'd like to see uh, on this going forward? Because I expect that this is probably going to be a story we're going to be hearing a lot more about in 2021. Yes, very good. So I think there was a third uh, story I sent you. It was yeah. actually Axios, the Axios version. I, I spoke to uh, Max about this yesterday or Wednesday. Uh, we talked about, uh, I I'm forgetting which one came first. We talked about the DoorDash IPO. Yeah. Then I spoke to Tommy Thornton yesterday after the IPO from uh, Airbnb went uh, vertical. And then there's this article it's talking about uh, the fears of a bubble uh, actually growing louder. And, you know, here's how I would play this is that, yeah, those fears are, are, are justified. To me, the price action in both of these companies, which are on either side of the, uh, of the pandemic, you know, one, DoorDash is a stay-at-home company. The other, Airbnb, is exactly the opposite, getting crushed by stay-at-home. And yet, uh, both of them are going up ridiculous amounts. We're talking, you know, doubling in the first day. And with market caps that Tommy Thornton, he was comparing both companies to uh, with traditional companies are absolutely 
ridiculous. I mean, when I say ridiculous, I mean, there's no financial justification for these market caps relative to these other companies. Yeah, let's look at the case of DoorDash, uh, valued by private investors at $16 billion, current market cap around uh, over $65 billion. I think it was a 66 and change. Yeah, so I mean, there's no, uh, there's no way that that company, just because great things happen in the stay-at-home market, uh, that it should be trebling and, and quadrupling in, in market value. Even worse, obviously, is Airbnb, right? Because if you could use the same numbers, last private valuation versus the valuation on the market, and this is a company that's been devastated to a degree, uh, you know, they've come back from the stay-at-home situation. Yeah, another four-banger, right? And, uh, and you know, you look at that and you just, you do wonder. It seems to me like the rise in prices. I buy the shares because I think you're going to value them higher and I can sell them back to you at a higher price. Right. So, I mean, I think we finally entered the, the phase now. You know, Tesla was one company that was there. But we finally entered the phase where we can say almost objectively, this is a bubble. Uh, these are bad things that are happening. And if they're happening uh, to the degree that they're happening now, is it not having a uh, concomitant impact on the rest of the market? So I think we can finally say, I mean, me, for the first time, I can objectively see uh, pockets that are similar to what we saw in the 1990s, the late 1990s. This whole uh, IPO frenzy, uh, you know, with these companies vaulting higher uh, with no reason behind it. That's very scary for me because uh, given we're in the middle of a pandemic, it suggests that there's a lot of downside risk. Yeah, it's certainly reasonable to say that there are parts of this market that certainly appear appear to be very bubblicious. Uh, and it feels uh, a lot like the 1990s, except uh, I stayed out a lot later then. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and you had a lot more hair back then. <laughs> yes, I did. It might have been floppy. <laughs> and my hair was less white back then. <laughs> so, Ed, final thoughts as we come to the conclusion of this uh, tech-heavy episode. What are you going to be looking at going forward, uh, and how are you going to be evaluating this in the months to come? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, uh, what I'm looking at going forward is actually not the things that we talked about today. Let me. I'm just typing to uh, look at the numbers. I believe uh, maybe it was with you I, I spoke to about this the last time. I made a prediction uh, with regard to where we were going in terms of the shutdowns uh, and the uh, rollbacks. And the number that I was looking at was hospitalization rates. And I, I said 110,000 by, I believe, yeah. tomorrow. I think that I, I feel relatively happy to see that we're actually only at 107,258, uh, and we have two more days of data to get to that level to 110. So really, it, it suggests that the hospitalization uh, numbers have not increased a, a, a ridiculous amount. We're about the levels that I was talking about. We went from 100 to 110 in about the same period of time, or I predict uh, likely 109, maybe 110 by uh, the data that come out on uh, Sunday. And so that's good. But, uh, you know, the death count and the case count is up 28% or 49% and 28% respectively over the last two weeks, that would suggest that we still have a long way to go 
and a hospital overload is probably likely. So for me, I'm looking to see near term what that does to the economy and whether it has any residual impact on these bubblicious uh, sectors of the economy at the same time. Yeah, while we're talking about these bubblicious valuations, terrible human impact from this disease still today. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the the final piece of the puzzle in all of that is what happens in terms of the policy response. Yeah. So all of these three are interconnected. You have bubbles happening on, on the one side. You have, in the real world, a pandemic that's worsening, despite the fact that a vaccine is about to be administered and cleared tomorrow, I believe. And then you have uh, a dysfunctional Congress which isn't able to address the the problem of the the pandemic. How do all of those three come together in a way that is positive or or unfortunately potentially negative over the coming weeks? That's the real question in terms of markets and also in terms of the economy. Yeah. You know, I've been off in crypto land here these last uh, several weeks and months uh, focusing on that. Uh, but I've also recently begun to do a little bit of a deep dive on my own uh, into the labor markets. And I would add that's really the place uh, where the pandemic kind of meets the real economy. Those are the key numbers to look at. Uh, Haley Drasnan sent me a chart that uh, hopefully we'll get to show sometime next week that to me is really the killer chart that basically shows where we are uh, relative to other recessions in the labor market and the recovery does not even begin to bring us up basically to the bottom of other negative mm -hmm. adverse labor markets and it's a very difficult thing uh, for people who are not able uh, to you know sit at their computers and you know jump on zoom on a camera and uh, and do their jobs it's a real thing yeah well let's uh, make a, a um, promise that you, next time when you and I get together on RBDB we'll talk about that Labor market deep dive. That sounds fantastic. Excellent. Ed Harrison, thanks for joining us. There you go, Billy Ray. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.